Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you leave a house, stay there. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. I want to begin this morning with a proverb that I think is commonly heard. I certainly have heard it many times myself, even though it's very, very old. As far as I can tell in English, in writing, the proverb originates from a book called A Handbook of Proverbs written by a man named John Ray in the year 1670. But it may even predate that. It's not in the Bible, though. It's this. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Yeah, so you know the proverb. It has the idea of holding on to what we have for certain. Of living life with a closed fist. Of clenching tightly the things we have most securely. In some ways, that is true also in the world to which Jesus was sending his disciples. That a world that is so insecure and unsafe, a world in which there's so much uncertainty and so much peril, that sometimes we are forced to grasp firmly to the things we have if we're to maintain security and peace in this place. 
But Jesus seems to be bringing an ethic quite different than that in the ministry that he's sending his apostles into. There are four essentials to the mission of Jesus in the world that I think we see displayed in this passage. And the first is this. Jesus' mission is rooted in testimony. Jesus' mission is rooted in testimony. You notice that the text tells us that Jesus called the twelve to him and then he sent them out two by two. Why did he send them out two by two? Well, most likely Jesus is submitting to the law of Moses in that. In the law of Sinai, which Moses mediated, we find it in Exodus chapter 19 and following. There's a requirement that any claim must be validated by the testimony of at least two witnesses. A classic text is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And in the case that somebody is accused of a crime, according to the Israelite people, that claim, that charge is not even to be entertained unless it can be established by at least two credible witnesses. And so once you have two witnesses, according to Deuteronomy 19, you have to do a lot of research and make sure that these two are telling the truth so far as you can tell. And if they are, then the, the claim can be established and everything proceeds from there. And Jesus didn't just set apart two witnesses because it would be better for them to go that way. He set them apart because he's submitting to the law of Moses, recognizing that if they're to come into these areas and claim that they know who Jesus is, declare his gospel, there need to be at least two witnesses. And he doesn't just set apart two, you know, a set of two. Jesus sets apart six groups of two to go and bear witness to the things that they've seen in his life. Jesus does not claim the authority in and of himself to simply declare a matter and have everybody believe that he's telling the truth, the way some founders of some religions do. He insists on calling 12 alongside of him who will live and experience all the claims that he makes. And then he sends them out as his witnesses two by two. At a fundamental level, that's what Christianity is. This is the way Jesus set it up. He sent out witnesses and he asked people to believe their testimony from the beginning in his own ministry. Most people who heard about him did not hear about him by his own word. They heard through the testimony of those that he sent. Christianity and the mission of Jesus in the world is rooted fundamentally in testimony. And if we deny the truthfulness of the witnesses, we are really truly left with nothing except our own personal perspective on what we think God is and might want. Jesus' mission is rooted in testimony. And the sending out of the twelve in this manner was a picture, as much as it was theology, it was a picture for people that Jesus was following the law of Moses. So Jesus' mission is rooted in eyewitness testimony. Second, Jesus' mission is ratified by repentance. You notice these words? They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. So the simplest form of the gospel, according to the gospel according to Mark, the simplest, most basic form has to do with repentance. 
The Greek word is metanoia, which means a transformation of mind. The two words in the Hebrew that undergird that are the word shuv, which means to turn around, and nacham, which means to be remorseful or regretful. Repentance. And then the exorcisms and physical healings are meant to support that call to repentance, meant to be visceral evidence of its truthfulness. And do you notice that the witness is two? They call them to repent and they give two signs. Remember, everything has to be established by two witnesses. He casts out demons and he performs physical healings. Two witnesses to the claim of repentance. Everything is about witness. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to claim that the picture Mark gives here is a universal picture and the only way the sharing of the gospel ever looks. That's simply, certainly not the case. There are other options. But I'm very interested in how Mark has Jesus telling his disciples to explain the gospel to those who have never heard it before. And for Mark, the gospel begins with a call to repent. For the gospel according to Mark, the good news of Jesus begins with the assertion that each of us is heading in the wrong direction. The call to repent is a call to turn around, a call to rethink our lives, a call to reconsider all that guides us in the light of the example of Jesus. So the first question, at least that Jesus puts on the mouths of his disciples when he sends them out for this mission, is not first, do you want to be forgiven? The first questions the disciples asked appears to have been, do you want to change? And if that message was rejected, then the disciples were to move on, shake the dust off of their feet. If the call of the gospel is a call to change, we cannot argue anybody into a desire to change. We can give them information that will try to encourage them to want to change. People do this with people who are addicts and, uh, and involved in other hurtful situations. We can try to raise their awareness. We can try to tell them that they need to change. But in the end, we cannot argue someone into wanting to turn around. In the end, that is something they have to somehow want. We can't force someone to want to change. We can't argue with someone to make them want to change. Somehow, they have to want that. And so the disciples go out and they say, repent. And if somebody receives that, then they're to go into the first house that invites them in and use that as their launching pad for the rest of their mission. But if people refuse to repent or do not respond to that call, then they're to shake the dust off their feet and move on. Somehow Jesus' mission is ratified by repentance. There is no way to follow Jesus without a desire to change. We can give the information, but each of us must choose. Jesus' mission is rooted in testimony. It's ratified by repentance. And Jesus' mission recognizes peril. It recognizes peril. This might be the most hidden, but the most amazing revelation that occurs in this section of Mark. And it has to do with that story of John the Baptist 
inherit. It looks like it interrupts the story, right? I mean, the way the logic of the story goes is that uh, Jesus is sending his disciples out. They go, they have a very successful ministry. Word gets back to Herod, who thinks, oh my, John the Baptist has come back from the dead. And then Mark realizes, oh, you didn't know John Baptist was dead. Let me tell you how that happened, and then we'll get back to the story. That's how it feels, right, when you read it? But this insertion here of the short story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist may seem oddly placed, but to my reading, that is deceiving. It's perfectly placed. And this is because of the figure of John in this gospel. Now, we know that he's not John the Baptist raised from the dead because the first scene of this gospel story was John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. It would be hard if they were the same person. So we know that's not the truth. But there's a reason that this is brought up, and it's because John is put forward for us as Elijah. He's put forward as Elijah. Now let me explain that. John the Baptist is a fulfillment of a prophecy, and you can find this in the last chapter of the book of Malachi, which is the last chapter of the, of the First Testament, if you want to. And what was prophesied is that before the day of the Lord came, before the Messiah came, before God entered into human history somehow to deliver the people of Israel from the oppression of their enemies, to restore the covenant with Israel, and to reestablish them as a nation, before that day comes, according to Malachi and other places, a prophet was going to be sent who would be like Elijah. Now, some thought that that would really be Elijah because Elijah never died in the First Testament. He was caught up in a fiery chariot in the middle of his ministry. And so some thought it would be actually Elijah who comes back. John the Baptist is asked about that, and he says, no, I'm not Elijah. And what he means is, I'm not that guy. I didn't go up into heaven. I'm not like a thousand years old. That's not me. But he is the fulfillment of the prophecy that one like Elijah would come. And there are amazing parallels between the life of John the Baptist and the life of Elijah. If we go back to the book of 1 Kings, we find that just like John the Baptist is having this weird confrontation with Herod and Herodias, so Elijah had a rough situation with a king in his own time. The king's name was Ahab, and his wife was Jezebel. And Elijah, just like John the Baptist, spoke against their marriage for different reasons. Jezebel was not an Israelite. She was a Phoenician. She worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth and other false gods, and she brought that worship into Israel. And Ahab was willing to be complicit in all of that. And so Elijah was always preaching against Jezebel and her influence. And so Jezebel wanted to kill him. She was constantly trying to kill him. Matter of fact, she killed thousands of prophets to the point that Elijah believed he was the only prophet left after her little massacre. And Ahab protected Elijah. He, I mean, he didn't like him, but he knew he was of God and he was a little bit nervous of making God upset. So like Herod, Ahab didn't want to see John, I didn't want to see Elijah die. But there's a difference in these two stories and that difference makes all the difference. Elijah, believing he's the only one left, flees to Mount Sinai. You remember the story and he waits on God and God comes to him in the still small voice after a storm and a bunch of other things. And Elijah cries out to God saying, I'm the only one left. And God says, that's not true, Elijah. I've reserved 10,000 for myself who've not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. And the story of Elijah begins to turn and Elijah realizes that God is on the throne, that he's in control, that he's protecting him, that Elijah himself is protected. And that conversation gives him strength to go back into the fray and to go back to the, to the nation of Israel and to not fear Ahab and Jezebel, because God will protect him. That's Elijah's story, to the point that Elijah is never even killed. He actually gets taken up in a fiery chariot and never tastes death. That's the story of Elijah. So what should happen with John the Baptist? 
He should be protected, right? He should be set free. He should maybe be caught up in a fiery chariot. If this is the Elijah to come, then we should expect the same story told in the first testament to be told again. But that's not what happens. John the Baptist, the Elijah who was to come, is beheaded at a party for a fickle reason. What is happening? The disciples have gone out on this mission. We would expect they're going to be protected, right? That they're going to, he gave them power over demons and powers and authorities. They're healing illnesses. And so we think this is all going to go good. The kingdom of God's going to be set up. And then Mark says, just in case you wondered if this is like the first testament, it's not. John is dead. Elijah's not going up in a fiery chariot in this story. Elijah got his head chopped off at a party. What's going to happen to Jesus? What's going to happen to the apostles? What do you think it would have done to the disciples to hear the story of John the Baptist? What do you think it would have done to Mark's audience to hear that God did not protect John? He was set apart from the womb. He was a prophet of God. He heralded the Messiah and God let this happen to him. How does that make any sense? But you see, the gloves are off in the Gospel of Mark. Whatever God is doing, it does not include protection against the assault of tyrants. John died. Those of us who know the rest of the story know that all of the apostles minus John will die. That Jesus will be crucified. This is a different kind of kingdom. We cannot follow Jesus unless we recognize the peril involved in this world. He has not promised to protect us from it. That doesn't mean we'll all face it. But it does mean that some of us will. Jesus' mission is rooted in testimony. It's ratified by repentance. And it recognizes peril. And here's the final point, which might seem a strange one, given where we've, the journey we've taken so far. But it's where this ends. Jesus' mission requires rest. Jesus' mission requires rest. You notice after the story of John the Baptist, after the disciples go out on this mission for however long they were gone, and they come back to Jesus, Jesus says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. This is a feature of Mark. When Jesus completes a mission, whether it's successful or unsuccessful, the first time he did this, it was an unsuccessful mission. This one seems to have been successful. But either way, after a mission, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. And after this particular mission, Jesus invited his disciples to join him. And I think that there's a principle here in the life of Jesus. And it's this. The mission of God in this world requires rest. It requires rest. Matter of fact, I'm convinced that the enemy of our souls one of the more effective means by which he can keep us from fulfilling the mission of God in the world is by keeping us busy. There is such a thing as being too busy to be a follower of Jesus. We cannot effectively serve God's kingdom and ignore the Sabbath. We cannot do it. Jesus could not He taught his disciples that they could not. 
and we're fools to believe that we don't need it. We've allowed our culture and our ethics and our work ethics and our best of intentions and our fear of going hungry and our fear of not being good parents and our fear and our fear and our fear to let the culture take the Sabbath from us. Now, I'm not saying Jesus did this once a week. I don't know if he did. Matter of fact, that's one of the things he seemed to argue with the Pharisees about, but he did it. We must make time for Sabbath or we will not have time for God's mission. We will be too busy to be Christians. Jesus' mission is rooted in testimony. It's ratified by repentance. It recognizes peril and it requires rest. And all of this, I think, is preparing us for a teaching that's just ahead in Mark. We'll talk about it more extensively when we get there. But it's Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus says, then he called, or that Mark says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. If we're to follow Jesus, we must learn to let go, to open our hands and stop grasping and start releasing what we need to release to Jesus. We have to release first our trust to the apostles. It's a difficult thing to do, I know. We must release our direction to Jesus. We must be willing to turn around. If we're unwilling, we can't even really start. We must release our desire for safety and security and accept that there is peril in the kingdom and not start using our safety and security as justifications for not following God. And we must release our busyness and our productivity and maybe even our bottom line for the rest required for our mission. The writer uh, Idris Shah recounts the story of a man who trapped a monkey uh, by building a jar that was firmly fixed in place and couldn't be broken. And he put cherries in it. And the monkey came and reached his hand into that jar and he grasped those cherries and the, the lid of the jar was, was narrow enough that with his cl fist clenched he couldn't get it out. Now, the, the monkey was perfectly free. He could have let the cherries go at any time and removed his hand. There were no clamps or anything else. But he just wouldn't let go of those cherries. And so he was caught. We do need to recognize that if we grasp in a trap, we will become slaves. Is one in the hand better than two in the bush? Depends on what it is. Depends on what it is. But to grasp something out of fear of what losing it might mean, without respect of the apostles or of Jesus, is foolish. Some things must be released. Released. 